list is long, right, of all of the things that can make us a little hopeless. And then, of course, we can move from that big picture stuff down to the little picture of our own little lives. You know, who in your family is suffering physically or emotionally? How are your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews doing? You know, we can put on our little uh, closer vision binoculars and look at those things. There isn't probably a day that goes by that I don't worry about my children and my grandchildren. And, and I'm not hopeless, but hope is certainly something, I don't know, my heart just gets overwhelmed, overwhelmed. And I bet your little hearts do too during this time. So as we talk about hope today, I'm gonna borrow a thing that indigenous traditions do all the time, which is tell a story. And the reason we tell stories is in, in a tribe, you always gather at those moments where something is happening and you're trying to make sense of it. And so they gather the tribe and they tell the story. It can be a story that's told again and again because every time you hear it, you're gonna hear something different. It can be a story that uh, makes you laugh, makes you cry. But indigenous cultures all hold stories as so precious, handed down from generation to generation. The nice thing about indigenous stories is they don't have a moral. They're not like Grimm's fairy tales where don't go in the woods alone. Uh, it, it doesn't have a moral to the story. In fact, in indigenous storytelling, you're to find who you are in the story. You're to find what does it say to where you are in this moment. So that's where we're going to begin is with a little story. Storytellers also always bend the story just a little each time they tell it so that the frequency of their hearer's ears can tune into it. So I'm gonna begin with a story. It's not extraordinary, there's no superheroes or supervillains, though I like those kind of stories. But it's just a story about a Midwestern family and their vacation in the summer of 1967. Yeah, that's my family, <laughs> and we're going on vacation. I'm 11 years old, and this is my family's first road trip. And we, there's some things you need to know about my family of origin. One is that we are Wisconsin farmers, which means that you milk cows twice a day, which means Usually you're only gone for a few hours in the middle of the day, if you're lucky. So to go on a road trip as a family meant somebody had to come in and do our chores twice a day. And luckily that year, 1967, we had a good hired hand and a neighbor who would come and help out. So off we went on our first road trip. So another thing to know about my family is we are pretty landlocked. We live in farmland in Wisconsin. So we decided on our vacation to go to the Pacific Ocean. The, that's like so far away. It's also important to know that my dad would get homesick and worried sick 
a lot. So here we were, this little landlubber family heading out to see the ocean for the first time, my two brothers, me, and my parents. Here's another fun fact. We had never camped. And my dad, for whatever reason, decided we're going to rent a pop-up camper. And so he found somebody who had one that we could rent, and uh, we, we were going to camp along the way and save some money, because that's an important value also in my family. So uh, first night in the campground, soup, I'm super excited. I think it means campfires and s'mores. So we're parked, you know, we pull into the, the campground, and my dad, who again is used to a lot of space around him, we're parked next to another camper. And he's like, they, they're in our business. They're, I can hear them, they can hear us. Because it was just one of those little fold-down campers, so you heard everything everywhere. So he just wasn't really keen on this camping thing after all. So it kind of turns out that we pulled a pop-up camper from Wisconsin to the Pacific Ocean and back, and we stayed in cheap motels. <laughs> we did. Yeah. So on this trip, we're on our way. We you know, went to the Badlands, super cool, Mount Rushmore. Then we went to Yellowstone. Uh, and you know, way back then, there were bears around that you could watch. But we got to Old Faithful. And it was going to be 30 minutes before Old Faithful went off again. And my dad's like, we're not waiting around for 30 minutes. So we got back in the car and kept going. <laughs> and I'm like, please, I just want to see Old Faithful. I didn't even know, really know what it was, but my tears were, that's an important thing about my family. Tears meant nothing. We just kept going. We got a destination in mind. So then we get to Glacier National Park. Now, my older brother, he's 15 and had just gotten his learner's permit to drive. My dad, by the time we got to Glacier, he was kind of tired of driving. So he said to my brother, how about you drive? We're going to take that uh, a road called Highway to the Sun. And I'd like to be able to look around a little. <laughs> Have you been on the highway with a 15-year-old driving? Luckily, my brother's very responsible. So my parents get in the back seat of the car. You know, there's zero seatbelts at this point in life, right? And, and me and my two brothers are in the front seat together because you could do that back then, three people in the front seat. And so we're riding along, and I'm over here by the door, and my job is to say, we're getting kind of close to the edge, we're getting kind of close to the edge. My brother in the middle is like, there's cars coming, there's a pull-off, and my other brother just driving, 15 years old. So my parents are in the back seat like, oh, look at that view, oh, there's a moose over there, and we're just like, oh. So all of that is to say that my brother did fine, obviously we survived the trip, but my parents, they weren't always like very aware of things. <laughs> How to be cautious, perhaps, with your children. So we arrive at our destination. There we are on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. My parents, um, they're, they're, as we traveled, they always stopped at gas stations and asked the locals, where should we eat, where should we stay? Uh, so we stopped at a gas station as we're approaching the ocean, and you know, and I go in with them because 
that's me. I want to hear everything from my own self. Uh, you know, where can we where can we get down to the ocean? Where can the kids jump in? And <laughs> the the gas station owner just kind of says, uh, "You've never been to the ocean before," and we're all like, "No!" You know, we're super excited. And he's like, "Well, let me tell you a couple things. One is it's kind of cold, so I'm not sure the kids will really jump in." And and then do you know about the tides? And we're all like, "No, we don't." And so he's got on in the gas station a chart, and he can point to the day, and then we go down to the time, and he goes, oh, look here, this is today, here's the time, and right now it's high tide. And so you really can't go down to the shore here in this town. Um, so you gotta wait, and he shows us on the chart, six hours from now, it'll be low tide, and then you'll be able to get down onto the beach. So he, he told us where to go, uh, how we could access the beach. And you know we thought it was perfect. We could go and um, you know get checked into our motel. Yeah, a motel, not a campground. And we could then go back to the beach in six hours. All of that is to say, when I was 11 years old, I stood for that first time in high tide at the edge of the Pacific Ocean. There were huge boulders at the beach that the gas station attendant uh, led us to. Huge boulders, and the waves were just crashing over them. Just crashing. And I felt tiny and powerless and grateful that we weren't going swimming <laughs> in this. When we went back at low tide, it was like another world. Those huge boulders that had been covered by water, we could climb down them to the beach below. Now my oldest brother, the responsible one who drove us through Glacier, he, he had read a book before we went all about sea life. So we started the boulders and he's like pointing it out to us, look, look at these barnacles. There were these hard little rocks all over this uh, huge boulder, and he said, those are alive. When the high tide comes, they're gonna open up, send out little tentacles, and get fed that way. But right now, you know, they're just these hard little rocks. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and then we, we went around the whole rocks and we found those sea stars or starfish clinging, and we touch them and they cling tighter and you know, my brother said, yeah, they're gonna move all around the rock when the high tide comes back. I'm like, whoa, unbelievable. And then there were these little tide pools, right? Where the, where the ocean has gone out, but some of the water remains on the beach. So we just dropped on our knees and there were rocks and things there that we could pick up and there were sea cucumbers and there were little crabs running around. And, and we could, we could see them all and touch them all. And we had to like look to see some of the mysteries and the wonders, just hidden, just hidden, if you knew how to look. There were also just scattered across the beach all these sand dollars, beautiful, beautiful sand dollars. I'm like, whoa, 
never seen these before. I mean, can we take them home? Because I felt so rich, right? I picked one up. And I felt, oh, I'm the richest kid in the world. But my brother explained, no, they're alive. When the tide comes, they'll be floating and they'll get their food. So we let them be. That was our day at the beach. And here's what we know right now as an adult. The tides are affected mostly by the moon, but a little by the sun. The gravity of the moon pulls on the earth, and the only thing it's strong enough to pull is all of that watery stuff. And it does it twice a day in most places around the world. Twice a day, the moon pulls on all that watery stuff. And since we are also mostly made of water, twice a day pulls on all that watery stuff. And this brings me to the subject of hope. <laughs> yeah, the story does have something to say about hope. If you read the little definition that was printed uh, on your little handout, hope is a desire of some good accompanied with a slight expectation <laughs> of obtaining it or a belief that it is obtainable. Hope differs from wish and desire in this, that it implies some expectation of attaining the good desired or the possibility of possessing it. Hope, therefore, always gives pleasure or joy, whereas wish and desire may produce or be accompanied with pain and anxiety. Hope. So this is my case for hope in the landscapes of this world that we're trying to navigate. There is a role for hope in the scheme of things. Now, hope ne doesn't necessarily like change anything, right, if you hope but it, it implies, did you pick that up? It implies an expectation of obtaining the good desired. So we all know times when hope is super hard to feel or see, right? All those times where, I don't know, you're just depressed or maybe you're sick physically. Uh, it, hope can be so difficult at those moments. It's like waves are crashing over us and we're just a little overwhelmed by this thing, whatever it is, that's causing our hope to be diminished, like a high tide in our life. It can be a little frightening. We can't see anything but those waves that are crashing against the rocky shores of our soul, our very soul, and we feel something pulling at us, but we don't even know what. Things can feel out of control, beyond our ability to manage. So hope at those moments might not be very visible 
And I want you just to think about a time in your life where that was true. Maybe it's a present time. Maybe it's one of those big picture things, or maybe it's one of those more small things in your life. But a time when hope, you know, when life just felt like a high tide, overwhelming. But here's the truth. The low tide is coming. Tides turn. And hope shows us the way, this glimpse of something beyond the overwhelming times. Hope reminds us there's a hidden landscape just beyond what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. Hope reminds us that all kinds of life teems just under the surface, under the struggle, and that we'll be able to find it. There are heartaches and dreams to share at those times when we're not feeling submerged, when we're not afraid we will drown. Hope points the way by reminding us that there are cycles to everything, everything. If there's one thing that, that I would say nature teaches us, is that there are cycles. The world forgets that. You know, this busy world up here forgets that the powerful fall, that we have stuff and we lose stuff, that, you know, whatever all of those, you know, there's Democrats, Republicans, all those dualities in this world up here. But down here in our little souls, tides change. Nature teaches us this. So hope shows the way. I'd want to add something to the dictionary if I were writing it, if instead of Webster, it was Ruth's Dictionary, uh, that there be also a noun for a person who hopes. And we're going to call him a hoper. <laughs> oh, you'd look at somebody and say, yeah, they're a hoper. Ah, yeah, and that's a good thing. They're a hoper. So just over seven years ago, I had one of those times where I was uh, in high tide, overwhelmed, clinging, clinging on. I had been diagnosed with cancer, and uh, it was an aggressive form of cancer, and there was no, you know, like, well, how's this going to work out? What's going to happen? And it is so hard when you're in those moments to really hold on to hope, right? Uh, the months of treatment, of just feeling awful, I you know, kept trying to be strong for other people because that's what I do, but mostly I was just sad and uncertain. That, you know, I just felt like, I, this is my life. What am I, what, what, what? So during that time, of course, I was surrounded by people who did lovely things for me. But that's one of the problems with high tide is you hardly see it. There are people navigating around you, bringing you delicious food or you know, sending you a, an encouraging note or uh, lovely things. But when you're just trying to hang on, it is so hard to even see those things. But I had one friend in particular who would just jot me little notes maybe once a month. 
and it was on the computer, so I'd get a little email. And she, she was a hoper, I'll tell ya. Here I am clinging on, wondering what's gonna be next, and her little notes would they say things like, this will pass. <laughs> and she would say things like, uh, I know it's a struggle right now, but there's more to your story than struggle. And she would say things like this, when I meditate, I see you as whole and well. <laughs> I couldn't see myself that way. So it was like she was holding a flashlight in the dark, right? Like, look here, look here. There's a little signal over here. You can see it. You are well and whole. Now, of course, there were no guarantees that that would be the outcome. Luckily, I'm well and whole. It's amazing. But it's exactly what I needed. This little call to me, this little flashlight in the dark to call me to remember that the tides will turn. We may not know quite how, but they're going to turn. And that I wasn't alone. It was like an invitation to know that I would be able to explore again in the low tide times, that there would be a chance in my healing to reflect back on that time of clinging to the rocks and see things differently. So my hunch is that all of you here in this room and those listening, I bet you're a hoper. I bet that's why you're here because you're not willing to give up on this world, on these circumstances. You're a hoper. There are full, high, super tides around the world. There are endless events and struggles that can leave us all at times feeling defeated and shaken. But it's our calling to remember that something will transform if we can keep our eyes open, our hearts clear, keep our feet grounded on the earth, keep our hands busy helping someone or something. It doesn't have to be something large. It can be a little, little computer note to somebody that provides that hope for them. I try to practice hope each morning I live on a farm, we have huge gardens, I spend a ton of time with the earth. So I try to practice hope every morning just by acknowledging beauty, just by breathing, just by celebrating the abundance. So I go out to my garden and there is my zucchini plant and I swear to you it's this tall and it's full, and it's bushy, and it's got huge, huge leaves. I don't know, they're not probably this big, but they look huge. My beautiful, abundant zucchini plant. And I talk to it, because that's what you do. If you're, gonna be, if you're gonna be a hoper, you're talking to your plants, you're grounded in the earth, so I talk to them and I, I, I marvel at my zucchini. 
I say, aren't you amazing? This, I had one tiny little seed that I put in the ground here, and look at you now. And then I take the zucchini for the day, this beautiful zucchini that I'm picking, and I wonder, ooh, is this zucchini going to get spiralized with some of my fresh, delicious, still warm from the sun tomatoes? Or oh, is this zucchini going to become zucchini bread? And then I get to bring the extra loaf to one of my friends who needs a little hope right now. Or is this zucchini going to become a, a frittata? My eggs from, you know, my beautiful chickens. You see how it works, right? From such a tiny thing comes all of these gifts of hope. I might even sneak a zucchini into my neighbor's mailbox. <coughs> mm -hmm. So while the world is swirling and crashing, I find hope in the seeds, in nature, in this understanding that tides come and go, that plants grow and diminish, that I grow and will someday return to the earth. I find such hope and peace in that. I know that my watery body is responding constantly to all of the swirling, and I know yours is too. But let our watery bodies also respond every day to the goodness that is as close as our zucchini plants. Will we ever see the change or healing in our lifetime? Who knows? But I'm a hoper. I'm going to hope that it happens. I'm going to hold that hope in my heart. Work for it. And you get to do the same. If right now you're clinging to the rocks, let somebody else hope you out. <laughs> get that? Help, hope, hope you out. Let somebody else hope you out. If you are at a place where you have something to give, then give it freely, unattached, knowing that that tiny seed can become something so much more. Everything is done out of that deep wisdom that there is beauty and oneness, that together we can be hopers. Thank you. <laughs>